that was an awesome recap to our fall Sunday and playground grand opening we had last week, and that was a really exciting day. First off, I want to thank everyone who helped with that, from door greeting to cooking food to serving food to helping set things up and take things down after. It made it a really good success and a fun day. We got to dedicate and cut the ribbon for our new playground that we put up for the community. You know, we saw um, a need in our community that in these uh, neighborhoods near us here, the church, there's not a great playground. And so with EO3, we said we want to be here for them, like it says, for the door. So we're going to take care of a need. And, you know, this week we've had several families playing on the playground using it. It's there for them. That's awesome that we took care of that need. But even more than that, we want to be here not just for, you know, those physical needs like a playground or things like that, but we want to be here for them spiritually as well. So when they're looking for a church or they're trying to find a church to go to, they think maybe the church with the playground, and they come here and they hear, you know, the songs we sang about, the messages we talk about, and hear about Jesus and how they can have life change. And that's why we do all the events we do here, right? I love fall. I love pumpkins. I love apple ciders. Uh, Apple cider, that's great. But at the end of the day, it's not just about enjoying those things, but it's about bringing people here so we can share the gospel with them. That's our mission. And if I can have a shameless plug for my Fuse event coming up, Dare to Share Live, that's what that's all about. If your student hasn't signed up for it, if you're a volunteer, you haven't signed up for it, we're having a day of Youth Evangelism Conference, we're going to talk about how each kid can have a gospel conversation with their friends, because that's our goal, is that our students go and share the gospel, so we have some other churches that are going to come, bring some kids, and we're going to have some music here, and we're going to have our students here, and we're going to teach them how to share the gospel, as well as sing some worship songs to God. It's going to be a great time. If they haven't signed up, do that. It'll be awesome. And as we jump into, back into our series today, The Life of David, a little recap, we've seen some crazy things in David's life already, right? Like as a 15, 16-year-old, he fought a giant, killed a giant, that's out of the ordinary. He was then chased by the king that was in power at the time who tried to kill him multiple times over the course of three plus years. That's not a normal thing most of us encounter, that's not a fun thing. And then finally, after like 10, 13 years, David becomes king. And so now his life's going to settle down. It's going to be easy, smooth. Everything's going to go easy for him now because he's king, right? Probably not. No, actually his life's going to get really, really messy starting with today. And most of it by his own fault because David messes up really, really bad. And so I don't know if you guys are into like those true crime documentaries or podcasts or, you know, like a Criminal Minds type show. Those are really popular right now. Um, and a lot of people like those. Um, I don't personally because I don't like to be scared and think about that. But, you know, a lot of people like them. You know, I was at my parents' house and they were watching like my neighbor, the murderer, you know, like documentary. Like, that's kind of terrifying. But today you're going to see David's life and we're going to see him commit a sin that probably would put him on a podcast or one of those shows, right? Like, he just kind of messes up and messes up, and it would be a great story. But you see, today, I don't want to focus so much on it, because we probably know the story, David and Bathsheba. Many of us have probably heard it before. We're going to talk through it quickly, but I then want to focus on David's response to his sin and more importantly, God's response to his sin and our sin. Throughout this series, we've been talking about how David was called a a man after God's own heart. And even after David sins here, even after he messes up big time, God says, David's a man after my own heart. And so we've been trying to look at and see how we can be a person after God's own heart. And today I want us to see a person after God's own heart will seek forgiveness for their sins and then live life God's way. So we'll jump into this. We're going to be in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and then Psalm 
51. And we'll start off right here, 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. It's up on the screen here. It says, Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of it, all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Reba. But David stayed at Jerusalem. So chapter 11 is all about David's mistakes. It's just one mistake after another. He kind of spirals into mistake and mistake and mistake, and things just get worse and worse and worse for him. So if you're looking at chapter 11, you want to sum it up, just sum it up, mistakes, problems. And the first one here is right off the bat, David stays home from battle. Now there's some disagreement on whether that was a sin and he should have been there, or he was just getting probably closer to 50 here. He's getting to that age where, you know, war is a young man's game. So he'd already killed his giant and his 10,000. So maybe it's time for him to just kind of stay back and let the young guys handle it is what he's thinking. But the Bible points this out because this is abnormal for David. When his people were out at war in the past, David was there with them. This is the first time he wasn't there with him. And we're going to see, was staying home the sin? Probably not, but it leads to it, and David doesn't ever stop it. So David's at home, they're at battle, it's the springtime, it's a good time for battle, you know, it's nice and warm, it's not cold anymore, nobody wants to fight, fight each other when it's cold, so they, they go to war when it's warm. And David now is back at home, and he can't sleep. He's probably feeling bad because everybody else is out at war and he's staying back, but David can't sleep, so he goes up to the palace roof. That's not abnormal, right? We'd go, maybe not on your roof, but you go for a walk if you can't sleep, trying to take his mind off it, and David goes up there and he sees something he shouldn't have. He sees his neighbor Bathsheba bathing outside, and now David, again, could have stopped this, right? Was being outside a sin? No, probably not, but he could have went inside. Could have said, well, shouldn't be here, go inside, fix the problem, but David doesn't do that. He keeps messing up and making matters worse for himself. So David says, I wonder who that is, actually. I'm going to, hey, servants, go find out who that is. And they come back to him. They're like, that's Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. You know, Uriah, one of your soldiers, his, uh, her dad is Ahithophel, one of your mighty men, you know, like that, Bathsheba. And David goes, okay, okay, cool. See if she wants to come over. David, dude, like you're, <laughs> come on, man. And she does, and they have an affair. Now, it's on both of them. She could have said no. Maybe she felt like it's the king, you have to say yes. But God, as David being the leader who he should have been the king, shouldn't have done this. And there's often consequences for our sin. Bathsheba becomes pregnant, and David's not so much worried about the sin in the moment, but he's now worried that people are going to find out. She's pregnant. His, her husband's going to find out. The people are going to find out. Like, everyone's going to know what happened. So he's got to cover it up instead of coming clean, right? <laughs> the mistakes just keep going. Let's cover it up. So he brings Uriah home. He says, Uriah, come back from battle. We'll, you, know, you can spend some time with your wife. It'll be great. But Uriah says, no, I don't want to do that. If all of my fellow soldiers are at battle away from their families, why would I spend time with mine? So he sleeps at the gate of the palace outside. And David is just facepalming here like, Uriah, you're killing me, man. All right, I know what I'll do next. David throws dinner party, brings Uriah, gets him drunk, hoping that maybe when he's drunk, he won't be quite as moral of a guy, and he'll go home to his wife, and Uriah still doesn't. So Uriah will not help David cover up his sin. So David is now just racking his brain what he needs to do. And so David plots to have Uriah killed, kind of similar to how Saul tried to have him killed. Maybe David's remembering that and pulling a, a page from his playbook. And David says, okay, 
and have him killed. So he sends Uriah back to battle with a letter for Joab. He sends Uriah with his death note to take it to them, which is just totally dark and terrible. And he says, all right, Joab, when you're in battle, when the battle's getting fierce, put Uriah up front and then pull everybody else back and let him kill him. And while that happens, and Uriah's killed in verse 21. And you know, David goes, oh no, Uriah, I'm so sad. It happened, he's dead. And in verse 27, David tries to finish fixing the problem. He marries the now widowed Bathsheba. He looks like a good guy, right? He's taking care of a widow. How noble of him. But the end of that verse says, David displeased God. David's not thinking about his sin. He was just thinking that, hey, I got away with it. I did it. Like that true crime documentary, as we talked about before, he's, he's at that point where he's spiraled, he's escalated, he's been sloppy, he's made mistakes, he's tried to cover it up, but now he's thinking, I got away with it. I'm good. Nobody knows. We'll jump over to chapter 12. Chapter 12, David's confronted about his sins. He doesn't get away with it. The prophet Nathan comes and, and Nathan says, David, I got a problem, a dilemma. Will you help me? And the king is always there to help out with stuff, with wisdom. And he's like, yeah, I'll help you out. What's your problem? He says, all right, I got two guys. One of them's rich. He's got lots of flocks, lots of sheep. So rich people do. Um, and so he's having a, and then we've got this poor guy. He has one lamb, just one. And it's like their family pet. He raised it with the kids. Uh, It's really near and dear to him. And the rich man has some friends come over and he wants to throw a party for him. So he's going to cook some lamb up. Instead of taking one from his flocks where he's got an abundance, he goes and steals it from the poor man, kills it, and cooks it. And so he's like, what do we do? Nathan's like, David, what do we do to this guy? And David's like, I know, he's mad. The Bible says he's irate. He's angry. He goes, we're going to kill him. That's what we're going to do. We're going to kill that rich man. And then we're going to, before he does that though, we're going to make him pay the poor man back four times what he took from him. And now at this moment, different people have different opinions on Nathan's response, right? A lot of people like to think Nathan jumped up and down and was like, that's you, David. I don't, I don't think he did. I think David is mad. He's hot. He's angry. He's like, we're going to kill this rich man. And I think Nathan just looks at him calmly. And this is just my opinion. So take it for what you're worth. But Nathan looks at him and the Bible says he goes, you're that man. That's you, David. And it all hits David all at once here. He's being found out for his sin. He knows what's going on now. And Nathan says, David, there's going to be consequences for your sin. You can look at verse 10. He says, you're going to have, you're going to have violence plaguing your family for the rest of your life. It's going to be problematic. He says, you're going to have family issues in verse 11. And what are some of those family issues? We'll look at what the Bible says. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. A lot's going to happen in the coming chapters, and we'll talk about it more as we finish the series out. But David has some kids, and one of them's a son, son named Amnon, and he's going to rape his half-sister named Tamar, and David's not going to do anything about it. That's going to anger his other son named Absalom. Absalom, seeing his dad doesn't want to do anything, takes matters into his own hand and kills Amnon, murders him, takes care of the problem. Remember that violence is going to plague his family? Then Absalom, the people really like Absalom. The Bible says he's got beautiful hair. They like him. He's a cool guy. And so he leads a rebellion against his dad, starts a civil war, basically. That's what that verse was mentioning there. And before the civil war is over, Absalom even has an affair with one of David's concubines or wives in broad daylight. And then eventually he's killed. David's going to have some family issues 
that are coming up. He also mentions that the baby will die. And at this point, in verse 15 through 23, you see David's reaction to all this news. His sin's been found out. The consequences have been laid out for him, and they're not great. And so David is praying and fasting, verses 15 through 17, so much so that he's not getting up. He's not eating. He's not changing his clothes. He's not getting ready. And his servants are trying to get him to do that, and he won't. And then, so they're like, this is a problem, right? David won't get up. He won't eat. He won't do anything. And when the baby dies, they're afraid to tell him because they're like, this is going to be the end for him. Like, it's going to push him over the edge. And David hears him talking, perhaps in the corner, and goes, is he, he knows what happened. He goes, is my child dead? And they say, yeah, he is. And David's response shocks them. David gets ready, gets changed, worships God, and eats. And they're like, David, what are you doing? We thought you were going to go crazy, lose it when this happened, but you're worshiping God, you're changing, you're eating. How? And look at David's response, verse 22 and 23, because this gives us a little glimmer of goodness in this terrible story. David says, he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Here David says, when the baby was alive, I prayed and fasted because God might be gracious, but here the baby's died, I can't bring him back to life. We know we can't bring him back to life, but David here gives a little hope, and this is where we get um, our belief that children who don't understand right from wrong yet, um, and they die, we'll see them again in heaven one day. Because David says, I can't bring him back here, but I'm going to see my child again one day. It's a little glimmer of hope in a sad, terrible story. Again, we've maybe heard this story before. Or if you heard it for the first time, we're hearing how terrible and messed up David's sin is. And I don't want to dwell on his sin. We all, I hope we all understand that having an affair and murdering someone is wrong. We'd agree there. I don't need to bring that point up. But what we want to focus on is David's repentance and God's love and forgiveness for him. If you turn over to Psalm 51, in Psalm 51, it brings together the painful reality and the depth of David's sin. But it also brings up the wonder of God's divine mercy and his love for him. It's a prayer of forgiveness and restoration and repentance. And, and that's what we're going to talk about here is David's repentance. And we're going to see that repentance is the act of changing one's mind or position or direction. So David here is seeking forgiveness of sin and moving on from it. So what does David's confession teach us about the repentance of our own sin? Well, as we look through Psalm 51, you'll first see that repenting means appealing to God's love and mercy. Look at verses 1 and 2. Here, David's prayer to God, he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David's appealing to God's love and mercy here because he knows that God's promise of love for him and that God would offer forgiveness based on that. So when David's asking for forgiveness, even though he sinned horribly, he messed up really, really bad, he knows that God still loved him. No matter how bad he messed up, God still cared for him. Even though God hates the sin, God thinks the sin is terrible. We're not downplaying what David did, but God still loved him. And I think it's interesting, too, to note we don't see David, you know, bargaining with God or saying, hey, you know, God, if you forgive me, I'll not kill anyone else after I have an affair. Like, I'll do better. He doesn't do that. 
He's just appealing to God's love and mercy. And here, this word for love, it means God's faithful, unstoppable, always pursuing, never-ending love. David appeals to that love because, let's face it, he messed up big time. He messed up bad. Arguably, probably one of the worst ways possible. It wasn't great. But David comes to God and says, please be merciful to me. Forgive me. He seeks the greatness of God's compassion next. Not the richness of God's wrath, but he says, God, I need your mercy, your compassion. David didn't view God as angry or wrathful, although he he confesses and he understands the gravity of our sin, his sin. We'll see that in a moment. But David was pleading to God's richness of his mercy. Uh, Spurgeon said it this way, men are greatly terrified at the multitude of their sins, but here is comfort. Our God has a multitude of mercies. If our sins be in number as the hairs on our head, God's mercies are as the stars of our heaven. God's mercy and his love far outweighs our sin. David, at the end of that passage, asked God to wash him and cleanse him from sin. And in the Jewish culture, washing of clothes and hands was signifying a new beginning. David saying, I want a new, fresh start. David first, though, appealed to God's mercy and confessed his sin. And the next part you'll see here is repenting means being brutally honest about sin. Look at verses 3 through 6. David says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. David here is being honest, confessing his sin. Um, David understood how bad his sin was. He wasn't trying to hide it. He wasn't trying to cover it up anymore. He did that already. But David knows that God already knew and he needed to confess it. And this wasn't just some like academic or head knowledge where he goes, sin is bad, I need to confess. Like I know that. The verse 17 here says this all comes from a broken heart. For David, repentance meant confessing his sin in an open and painfully honest way. You can tell just by reading the words there that David's heart is broken about his sin. He understands the gravity of it. One pastor said it this way, until sin is bitter... Christ will not be sweet. David understood in verse 5 where it all came from, and this is going to be key for us to understand in a moment, but he knows he was born into sin. There's a sin nature, and just because he was a follower of God didn't mean that magically went away. And it's the same for us. Just because we're Christians, we're followers of Jesus, doesn't mean that sin nature goes away. We're still going to mess up. But David understands that his sin was still bad and he needed to confess it. He uses three words here for sin, and while they're all sin, they're all bad, they all kind of cover the same thing, they also give us little nuances that help us understand the depth of his sin. David uses the word iniquity. That's a perversity or a distortion of what should be. He uses the word transgression, meaning to rebel against God's authority and law. Then he says sin, meaning to miss the mark. That's God's perfect mark in Romans 3.23. And so David understands his sin. And you see, David confesses in verse 4, and that's what I really want us to see there about our sin, is he says his sin is against God. Now, I mean, obviously he killed Uriah, sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba and the people, but all of those sins he committed, just like all the sins we commit, is ultimately a sin against God. And David 
said that that sin against God was evil in the sight of God. And evil, I think, is a shocking word because we use it, right? We use evil all the time, but we don't use it to describe our own sin often. We use it to describe other things like, you know, the Ohio State football team or um, Jim Harbaugh right now. Um, But in a more serious note, we'll use it to describe things like issue one that's being voted on. You'll hear evil thrown around, and definitely it's not great. You'll hear it thrown around about Planned Parenthood or abortion. It's evil. But how often do we say, my sin is evil. My ungratefulness, my bitterness, my angerness is evil the same way abortion is in God's sight. Because that's where David realized here that his sin, his evil, offended a perfect and holy God, and he needed to confess it. He then moves on to repenting, meaning begging for the effects of God's mercy. Look at verse 7 through 12, and David says, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. David here sees kind of four effects of God's mercy that he's just begging for in this prayer of repentance. David pleads for the cleansing of sin in verse 7. He mentions a hyssop, and in the Old Testament, the priest would take a hyssop, it's a leafy plant, and they dip it in blood or water and sprinkle it on the people to signify um, ceremonially being cleansed from sin. And David here is longing to be spiritually cleansed from sin. In forgiveness, God washes away sin. In verse 11, David mentions an effect of God's mercy being nearness to God. He mentions, God, don't take your spirit from me. And I can't help but think, because remember, unlike us now, if we've accepted Christ as our Savior, they didn't have the Holy Spirit with them at all times. And I can't help but think David's remembering back to Saul when God removed his spirit from Saul. You all remember that earlier on in our story? And David's remembering that and going, I I need God's spirit with me. That's important for him. He wants nearness to God. And listen, the good news for us as Christians is if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you're a follower of him, God's never going to leave us or forsake us. He'll always be with us. David was also seeking a moral renewal. He uses the word renew, saying it was once there, talking about his dulled conscience. Uh, It was once there, but he needs it to be renewed. His conscience has been deadened to a sense of right and wrong and good and evil, And often when we sin over and over, it can deaden our conscience. And David's saying, God, renew that. Convict me of my sin, because we're going to see conviction is a good thing. He also mentions, lastly, serious joy in verse 8 and 12. And oftentimes, unhappy followers of God are unhappy because we're weighed down by unconfessed sin and the shame and guilt of it. And David's saying, God, I need your true joy from you. And you know, for good reason, right? God's convicting us. That's a good thing. But David wants to be restored. He wants that joy restored. He's begging for the effects of God's mercy. And lastly, repenting means moving forward in humble obedience to God. Look at verses 13 and 14. David says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing 
of your righteousness. David is trying to move forward in humble resolve to obey God. And when does that happen? Well, he says, then. After he's prayed for God's mercy, after he's repented, confessed of his sins, and God answers it, David says, I want to move forward the right way, obeying you. He, pur- he purposes to set out to live life the right way. And remember, this repentance is a change in direction, so that's what he's striving for here. And it doesn't mean that David's always going to get things right, because he's not. He's going to mess up again. But what it does mean is he's banking on God's mercy to help him. He's banking on God to be there to help him move forward. And his intention is to live for the glory of God and proclaim that to others, to share what God's done for him. Essentially, that's what me and Harold say, living life God's way. That's what it's all about here, right? Like, he includes wanting to share with others what's been done for him, and that's what the gospel's all about. He wants to share God's righteousness and the mercy and compassion that was shown on him by the Lord. David wants to tell other people, like it said in those verses, other sinners, those who are messing up, that they can have forgiveness and love and mercy from God. Shouldn't that make us want to share the gospel more? The more we experience Christ, the more we experience his forgiveness, like David here, he messed up badly, but he experienced love and compassion from God that he wanted to share that with others. My question for us is, have you experienced God's forgiveness? Listen, we've been wrapping up these series here with a truth for life or a a takeaway here, and we've been talking about David being a man after God's own heart and how we can be, when we look at David's situations, how we can be a person after God's own heart. And so I have two thoughts for you. A person after God's own heart first off, will seek forgiveness for their sin. If you're a person after God's own heart, you will seek forgiveness for sin. You see, the difference between a a converted person and an unconverted person, a saved and an unsaved, is not that one sins and the other doesn't, but rather it's one takes part in cherished sins against a dreaded God, and the other takes part with a reconciled God against hated sins. You see, David realized that his sin offended a righteous and holy God. Do we understand that? Do we understand what the Bible says about our sins? Romans 3.23 tells us we miss the mark. We miss God's holy standard of perfection. God is perfect and just and never sinned. We do. We mess up. Sin being anything we, you know, a simple definition we think we say we do that displeases God. In Ephesians 2, the Bible tells us because of that, we're spiritually dead in our sins. We're alive here on earth physically, but we're dead in sin. And the Bible tells us that because of our sin in Romans 6.23, that we deserve death. Not death here on earth, but rather spiritual death. After we die on earth, we'll be separated from God. You see, God wants us to have a relationship with him and spend eternity in heaven after we die on earth. But because of our sin, we deserve to be separated from him and go to a place called hell, and it's as terrible as it sounds. But that same verse, Romans 6.23, the Bible tells us that because of God's free gift, sending his son Jesus to die for us, to pay for our sin, we can have eternal life, a relationship with God, and spend eternity in heaven. You see, Jesus loved us. He was perfect. He came down to earth as a man, and he died on the cross for our sins because somebody had to die for our sins. Somebody had to die for them and pay that price, and Jesus said, I'll do it because God loves us. 
You might say, well, great, what do I have to do to accept that? The Bible tells us, Romans 10, 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's as simple as admitting you're a sinner, believing Jesus died for you and he loves you, and calling upon him or asking him to save you. At this time, let's all bow our heads, close our eyes real briefly. No one's looking around. If you're here today and you've never done that before, I want to give you a moment to do that. The Bible tells us you only have to do it once, and that once you're saved, God keeps us protected in his hands. So if you've never done that before, you, you know you're a sinner, you believe Jesus died for you and loves you, and you want to do that, it's as simple as praying or talking to God, and it can be a simple prayer like this. It's not magical, but it's just simply calling out and asking God to save you. It can be, dear God, I know I'm a sinner. Please come into my heart and save me today. Amen. Now, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, the Bible tells us the angels in heavens rejoice when one person prays that prayer. If you've never done that before today and you did it today for the first time, I would love to know. I'll be praying for you. I won't call you out, but if you would, would you just slip up your hand if you did that today for the first time? Great, thank you. At this time, we can all open our eyes today. If you did that today for the first time or you've done that, you know, years ago, days ago, whenever, the great news is we have a relationship with Jesus. Now, the bad news is, like we saw about David, we still mess up. We still sin. We, we, that sin nature doesn't go away the moment you accept that. But the good news is, because of God's mercy and his love, God wants to forgive us. 1 John 1.9 tells us if we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from our sin. Listen, God wants to forgive you. All we have to do is ask. Like David, he seeks, he seeks forgiveness and God promises to give it to us if we seek it. So a person after God's own heart will seek forgiveness for their sin. And then like David, a person after God's own heart, this is the last one for you, will seek to help others find forgiveness. And this should be our whole mission in life, right? Once we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, whether we did it years ago or weeks ago or days ago or today, our whole mission should be to share the gospel with others, to see them find forgiveness in Christ. And listen, we're not saved by our good works, right? Uh, It's all through what Jesus did for us, what we just talked about. But because of what Jesus has done for us, it should motivate us to share that with others. We shouldn't want to keep it inside and say, God forgave me a lot, but I don't want anybody else to know about it. It should motivate us to do that. Because look at the gift God gave us. Look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, because I want us to understand what God truly gave us. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, the Bible says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. I love this passage because it tells us we were dead in our sins. That's where we were, right? We were walking around dead spiritually because of our own sin. But God, while we were dead in sins, we weren't worth anything. We weren't doing anything good for him. There wasn't any reason for him to do it other than the fact that he loved us. He sent Jesus to die on the cross to offer us forgiveness of sins, to offer us new life in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that when you accept Christ, you become brand new, a brand new creation spiritually. That passage there tells us you don't have to work for it. You don't have to do good things for it. It's all through Jesus Christ. And that should motivate us to share that. The end of that passage, we are his workmanship. We're his masterpiece. God is working on us because if you've accepted Christ as your Savior and you're here today, he has a plan for your life and a mission for you, and he's working in your life. And let me tell you that, spoiler alert, that plan and goal in your life for you, if you want to know what it is, is this right here, to share the gospel with others. To share with others how they can have forgiveness of sins. God promises us that no matter how bad we mess up, no matter how bad our sin is, even if you uh, have an affair and kill somebody, he'll forgive you, although we shouldn't do that. And not only can God forgive you, but he promises that he will. It's not just that he has the ability to it, but he promises, if you ask me for forgiveness, I'll do it. So are you helping others find that truth? Christians here today, are you doing that? Are, are you uh, sharing the gospel with those that don't know Jesus in your life? Your coworkers, your friends, your family, uh, your classmates, your uh, whoever, the person at the grocery store, are you sharing the gospel with them? Are you telling them how they can have initial forgiveness of their sins and restoration in their relationship with Jesus? And secondly, are you walking with other Christians? Are you pouring into them and helping them be equipped to do the same thing. Listen, today as we wrap this whole thing up, we saw David mess up terribly. Honestly, David was not a good guy in this story. We all probably wouldn't want to hang around him. Like, he messed up terribly. But God loved him and forgave him, and he wants to do the same for us. No matter how we mess up, he wants to love and forgive us as well. With that in mind, have you accepted that? Have you accepted Christ as your Savior? If you haven't, I'd love for you to talk to me after. I'd love to explain that more. If you have, if you have done that, ask yourself these two questions as you leave. One, who can I share God's love and forgiveness with this week? Who can I share the gospel with this week? What person is it? What coworker? What friend? What family member? Who can I tell them that they can have a relationship with Jesus, have their sins forgiven, and they can end up in heaven one day as well? And secondly, ask yourself this question, because this is important as well. What other Christian am I pouring into that I can help equip them to share the gospel as well? Because God calls us to help go and make disciples, to help grow others as well. Who am I praying with? Who am I praying for? Who am I reading the Bible with? Who can I help equip them to share God's love and forgiveness as well? At this time, let's go ahead and stand. We'll pray and we'll be dismissed. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for all that you've done for us. Lord, I thank you for bringing us here this morning. I thank you for allowing us to have the freedom to come and worship you and hear about you. And God, I thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for us and just for your multitude of forgiveness and second chances, God. Lord, please help us to take the challenge to heart. Help us to share the gospel this week. Help us to pour into other believers as we leave here today in your name. 
Amen.